Welcome back, friends, to the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades annual Halloween Spooktacular. I am your producer and co-host, Chris Miller, and I want to thank you for joining us for our fourth year of spooky stories and... Oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, so, uh, I will leave you... Uh... All right, listen, I I'll level with you. Uh, we were planning on getting together in person, but uh, something came up. But, you know, the, the show must go on, right? Uh, let us begin with... Uh, sorry. Let us begin with Kyle Graper and join him in Pittsburgh's cult house. Deep in the woods of southeastern Pennsylvania, there is a place so deeply infested with evil energy, the flora of the earth itself appears to recoil. The American Odyssey is littered with tales of decadence and deviance among the highest echelons of power and wealth. But the cult house on the Devil's Road stands a shrine to just how far some are willing to go to cement an eternal legacy. Finding Cosart Road takes a bit of effort these days. Just north of the Delaware border, nestled against the Brandywine River, Chad's Ford sits among ominous woods that would be at home in European folklore or modern horror cinema. Cosart's unmarked intersection with Pennsylvania 100 is surrounded by growth that seems to create an ominous entryway. Two lanes, but hardly wide enough for a single vehicle. The Devil's Road twists through disorienting forest and isolated farmlands. Locals clearly have little patience for adventuresome tourists. All identifying route signs have been removed, replaced by a series of increasingly vandalized, no trespassing or standing signs. Visitors report mysterious trucks that follow at a distance during the day, but menace strangers' cars at night. While the structures here are set back far enough from the road to hide them from ready view, gates and fences do dot the route and hint at winding driveways and private observation posts. As one nears the halfway point of the two-mile journey, the landscape itself starts to announce an escalation of the dread. Mostly, it's the trees. They appear to be in pain. Some, by erosion or something more sinister, sit on exposed roots that appear to imitate the human skull. Others, twisted, gnarled, and awful things, grow away from the road in a mockery of the position of the sun itself. This unnatural visage is all the more disturbing as it seems the trees are actively fleeing the road or whatever it is hidden beyond one particular gate. Here, up a densely wooded hillside and past an ominous red guard post, stands a massive stone mansion, Pennsylvania's Colt House. Said to be impressive even by the 1800s standards of wealth and masonry, the Gothic estate features windows that take the shape of upside-down crosses. Plenty of rumors of the origin and intent of this space have filled the void left by the missing public records. But the most interesting tales tie back to American royalty, the DuPont family. In the region since the late 1700s, their wealth, which once rivaled the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts, was due to a stranglehold over the gunpowder industry and would evolve into the chemical producing titan alive to this day. Long the subject of speculation and rumor, the DuPonts are said to have commissioned such a private retreat for far more disturbing intentions than escaping the tabloids. If local legend is to be believed, they had much to hide. The groundwork for the family's deviance can best be described by the family's founding patriarch, Pierre Samuel DuPont. The marriages that I should prefer for our colony would be between cousins. In that way, we should be sure of honesty of soul and purity of blood. 
in an effort to protect their holdings from outside control, the DuPonts are reported to have turned to incest. In the halls of the Colt House, decades of inbreeding twisted the bodies and minds of the bloodline for generations. Unsatisfied in just cursed reproduction, the house became a literal temple to Satan. Incestuous weddings, black masses, even human sacrifices on skull-shaped altars are said to have occurred, all in a misguided attempt to summon the devil himself and forge a pact with the demon. Those offspring of the family too deformed for public life were either locked away in the mansion, sacrificed in their black rituals, or left as infants among the roots of the nearby skull-shaped trees. When their own unwanted spawn ran thin, local families began reporting the disappearances of their own children. As the family's, family's rituals grew in size and complexity, they began to bring in willing participants from other wealthy families. Fueled by Satan, the DuPonts had built a cult in their own image, one on a foundation of bloodlust and disdain for nature. While it appears the DuPont family left their sickening version of eugenics behind in the early 20th century, the family has not stayed far from controversy and tragedy in our time. Could this madness, even today, be the end result of their forebearers' ungodly unions? Still today, troubling tales of outings to Cosart Rolled and the Colt House are easy to find. While few have seen the mansion with their own eyes, plenty have been chased by darkened SUVs, discovered signs of satanic rites, and the remains of butchered animals. Many of the skull trees have been removed, but the bent monstrosities lining the roots still stand near the Colt House gates. Some visitors report seeing flickering bonfires in the hills around the house. Could it be reports of the family's waning deviance have been exaggerated? That deep in the woods of Pennsylvania there are still those trying to gain power and influence through the blackest of arts? Or is it the forgotten offspring of a once-story line still haunt their lands for the right sacrifice to return them to eternal glory? That was Kyle in the Cold House. Um, and fortunately, he got his research before we got together because uh, he had an incident after work today. You know, Kyle has to go back to work in the office, right? Uh, but there was an incident. Uh, he was trying to head home and there was a fight outside of the building. He got caught up in it, tried to break it up, and one of the guys in the fight... <clears throat> sorry, uh, one of the guys in the fight bit him. Uh, he got checked out by EMTs. Cops said he was okay, looked okay. Okay, so everything was fine. Um, but like our cult house, while we're talking about some unexplained mysteries in mysterious places, here is our friend Keith Volhop with a spot just north of Pittsburgh on Blue Mist Road. Nestled in the northern suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is North Park, home of Irwin Road, otherwise known as the infamous Blue Mist Road. Some thrill-seekers have barely been able to escape with their lives, and numerous paranormal experts have touted this as the most haunted road in America. When evening falls in this deep valley road, an eerie blue fog settles in from nearby North Park Lake. When the full moon casts its light, evil emerges from the shadows. The Ku Klux Klan at one time held their rallies on this once secluded and wooded road. They would haul their unsuspecting captives into the woods and perform their lynchings in the tree lines. 
The souls of the victims still roam these trails and we'll show you the nooses hanging from the trees, the phantom rope that ended their life so abruptly and violently many years ago. If you are able to continue down the road, the ruins of the midget farm can be seen. Ostracized by their own families and cities, the little people of the Three Rivers region formed their own community, but their lives were not able to continue in peace in their own dwarfish utopian society. Many would continue to taunt, tease, and terrorize the tribe of tinies. Infuriated, the wee ones would surround and smash the car of the oppressors with rocks, clubs, baseball bats, and bottles until the antagonizers left the area, if they could. The shamed souls of the shorties still roam the road to this day. Beyond the midget farm lies the foundation of the home of the fatalistic family. The father, tormented by the hauntings surrounding his home, could no longer carry on. One night, as the blue mist settled on his farm, he became possessed by one of the spirits wandering through the surrounding wilderness. He was persuaded to butcher his family in order to save them from the screams in his head. He disposed of the slaughtered remains of his wife and two children in his septic tank, in the hopes that they would be hidden forever. The spirits of his family still haunt the fields surrounding his former home. When the moon settles on the mist here, the laughter of his children and the cries of their mother can be heard as the stench of raw sewage permeates the air. Beyond the remnants of this home, the road begins to narrow, the asphalt turns to gravel and dirt, and the woods encroach into what is little more than a wagon trail. You are now entering the zone of the coven. The witches of the Pittsburgh area needed a place to practice their black arts and cast their spells and dance in the pale moonlight. The spirits they conjured still roam these trails. Passers-by can hear the cackles and screams and see shadows twirling in the midst. Scratches and abrasions appear without explanation on the unsuspecting. Evidence of the these ceremonies and strange writings can be seen slightly covered by underbrush or carved into the trees. Only the foolish will touch these artifacts or translate the scripts, lest they be cursed for all eternity. Blue Mist Road has claimed two more victims since it was carved through the North Hills of Pittsburgh. A young couple on their wedding night was driving through the countryside on their way to their honeymoon destination. In an effort to avoid the ghost of one of the witches, their car skidded off the gravel, went over the embankment, and struck a tree. The two lovers were killed instantly and were buried at the Irwin Road Cemetery. When the full moon is out and the blue mist settles, the spirits of the lovers can be seen overlooking each other's graves, but never seeing each other. The markers of their graves lean towards each other as if to give one final kiss. It is said that on the day the stones kiss, the couple will see each other and the world as we know it will come to an end. Today, this road has been closed to all vehicles, but can still be hiked when visiting the park. 
however the park closes at sunset perhaps the souls of the lynch can find rest maybe the lilliputians will not be confronted the laughter of the children will not be heard the witches cannot extend their curse and we will never know if the lover's stony kiss will bring about armageddon i wish uh <clears throat> i wish keith was still here to tell you more about this but we had to um <clears throat> we had to cut our recording short because when kyle was um, telling us about his day like a little bit, you know, pushy. Uh, we all have bad days. We all get stressed out. I get it. It's no big deal. <laughs> Show must go on, right? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, goings on, uh, <laughs> here's Rob North with some strange goings on, uh, just south of Pittsburgh in Kecksburg, West Virginia. And an unexplained phenomenon that lit up the uh, lit up the the night sky. Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, is a tiny place, an out of the way place that fits onto only five acres, about thirty miles southeast of Pittsburgh, on the southern edges of Westmoreland County. It's a no nonsense place where people make a hard living with their hands and nothing that special ever happens and the people like it that way. But on the evening of December the 9th, 1965, Kecksburg's rural peace was disturbed by an event of epic proportions. Across six states and one Canadian province, a fireball was reported shooting across the sunset-laden sky, heading southeast at a shocking rate of speed. Seen by citizens in Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, West Virginia, New York, across many parts of Pennsylvania, and in Ontario, Canada, this fireball lit up the sky around it, deep, distant sonic booms resonating and echoing through the flat plains and rolling hills of the country it passed over as it traveled. As the object descended and kept heading further southeast, it began shedding flaming debris, leaving hot, smoking pieces of metal across a trail of more than 100 miles and igniting grass fires from Youngstown to Mount Pleasant. Finally, a little after 5 p.m., just as dusk was turning into darkness, Little Kecksburg was momentarily lit up by the light of the burning object that zipped in low over the town. Residents claimed that it sounded like an express train. One nearby resident, a Navy veteran from World War II, described it as sounding like the shells of an Iowa-class battleship racing overhead on their way to the target. With a thunderous boom, the object crashed into the woods not far outside of the little hamlet, leaving a pillar of smoke and dust rising in the moonlight. Most say it streaked straight in like a missile. Bill Bulabush, a local resident, claimed he saw it turn sharply in the sky before rolling over and hitting the ground. Residents of the town, thinking that it may have been a plane crash, donned their coats, grabbed flashlights, and ran into the woods to render what aid they could, wondering what sort of scene would await them. What awaited them was more bizarre than they could possibly have imagined. No one was able to get too close because the object still gave off such intense heat, even though it had been on the ground in the cold night for many minutes by the time residents arrived. The scene was eerily lit by flashlight beams and the light of small fires that were still burning all around the crash site, a smoky haze filling the air. The object had gouged a large furrow in the ground many yards long and was sitting in a pile of rucked up earth. The fierce momentum of its landing had knocked over quite a number of trees and several had been completely smashed to splinters by the object's bulk, and it was indeed bulky. Depending on who you talked to, the object was anywhere from 10 to 15 feet in length and anywhere from 7 to 10 feet across 
a deep bronze in color and shaped like a bell or, according to some, almost like a giant acorn. It had a flared base, wider than the main body of the object. It had no visible means of propulsion, no jet nozzles or thrusters or ducting of any kind. No wings, no visible means of entry into the object. And it had no lights anywhere, no wires, no visible sensors. It didn't appear to be manned by human being or otherwise, and there sure as hell weren't any bodies around. But the strangest aspect of the object was the fact that around the bottom few feet, there was a series of markings. Strange, almost like Egyptian hieroglyphics or pictograms, but not of any recognizable source. It gave off the smell of hot metal and ozone, and more than one witness said it felt like the air around it was filled with static electricity. It gave off no sound whatsoever, at least nothing that could be heard around the nervous chatter of the locals and the crackling of the small fires. A debate began amongst the locals. Who to call? The fire department? The police? More than one person suggested getting a priest. One suggested somebody try to get in touch with faculty from the Carnegie Institute of Technology who might have some idea of what the object was. But before any call could be made, more, more lights and barked orders to disperse filled the woods as dozens of officers from the Pennsylvania State Police and several other departments descended upon the scene and drove off the locals. The area was quickly cordoned off, and within the space of a few hours, witnesses reported that the woods were filled with spotlights, helicopters flew overhead, and the police presence was augmented by soldiers in full combat gear setting up checkpoints with machine guns. And others mentioned the presence of men in dark suits, men in lab coats, and men with protective radiation suits disappearing into the woods. In the middle of the night, witnesses saw a massive flatbed truck leaving the area under heavy escort, with a big lump about the size of the crashed object on the back of the truck tied down and covered in canvas. By the time the sun rose on December 10th, everyone was gone. The police, the military, everybody. Heading into the woods the next morning, some of the locals found that not only was the object gone, but the gouge it had left in the earth had been filled in and all the debris removed. Passing mention of the event was made in the area's papers over the next few days, but beyond that, not a lot of attention was given to the incident, although the Army did make an official statement that they had indeed deployed troops to the area to recover what was suspected to be a crash aircraft, but nothing had been found. When locals went to the papers to dispute this claim, spokesmen from government agencies came out and said that something had landed, but it was almost certainly a meteor bolide, which had broken up on impact. Scientific journals made note of the fireball, but other than that, things pretty much went quiet from that point on. Until strange little creatures wearing odd clothing and struggling to communicate with the locals started showing up around Kecksburg later in the 1960s. Not aliens, though. These were UFO nerds. Because while the regular media let the whole thing go, UFO magazines caught wind of the incident and how the government had handled it, and immediately the comparisons to the 1947 Roswell UFO crash began to fly around. And where there is an absence of information, the theories and conspiracies started to fly. Was it a nuclear warhead from a failed ballistic missile test? Some sort of experimental aircraft that went down? A satellite that fell out of orbit, perhaps one belonging to the Soviet Union? The Soviet space probe, probe called Cosmos 96, had been launched that same day, meant to head for an orbit around Venus, but the launch failed to exit Earth orbit, and the probe was lost. That is a matter of record, and the probe does look a little like the descriptions of the Kecksburg object, and I grew up in this area, and it's not a huge leap to believe that some of the locals would have confused Cyrillic letters with strange hieroglyphs. But, so the UFO enthusiast claimed, what if it was something a little more out of this world? It seemed like a pretty small craft, but so was the object that had crashed at Roswell and that had bodies aboard. And would there have been such a quick and massive response if it was something a little more run-of-the-mill? 
If it was a meteor or even a spy satellite, why did half the stateside army descend on Westmoreland County? Also, for all the more earthly explanations of what the object could have been, why then did the authorities be so cagey about the matter ever since? NASA claimed in 2005 to have records of the object that had been found there, but these records were conveniently lost in the 1980s. Freedom of Information Act requests into government records from other agencies have been met with stonewalling and silence in the decades since the incident. Supposed eyewitnesses who were part of the government recovery effort in 1965 have come forward in the years since to claim that what they saw definitely wasn't of human construction. So is the tiny town of Kecksburg really the Roswell of Yinzer country? They've certainly made a tradition of celebrating it like they are. Was there something in that object? Is it still in the woods of rural western Pennsylvania? Keep your eyes to the night sky and maybe you'll get the answer. Uh, really makes you wonder what happened that night. <laughs> Sorry about that. <coughs> but, uh, listen, um, when we got together to record, we had to cut it short. Uh, we owe it to you, the listeners, uh, to be honest and transparent. We had to cut Kyle from the <coughs> show because he got uh, aggressive in the studio. We did the work, so his part is <coughs> still, you know, it's it's there. Sorry, I'm feeling a little flushed. Um, it was unprofessional in his part, but we have our obligations, and he... <clears throat> well, he bit me. Um, we do not tolerate that kind of behavior here, and you should not either. I won't. <coughs> I, won't I won't dwell on it. Anyway, um, here's Michael Ornette with um, Fire... Um, Centralia. What if I told you the town of Silent Hill exists? Now, what if I told you that the story is even more bizarre than the movie itself? Well, both of those statements are true. The setting is slightly different, but this is the story of Centralia, Pennsylvania, and how it became a modern-day ruin. Centralia was a typical borough coal mining town in Columbia County, Pennsylvania, located northeast of Harrisburg on the way to Scranton. Like many towns in the Commonwealth, it owes its existence to the Industrial Revolution and the global demand for coal, facts that would lead to its ultimate demise. At its peak, Centralia contained up to 2,500 souls, mostly miners and their families, who worked in one of the 14 mines that dotted the landscape in and on under the town itself. While the need for coal began to diminish in the 1950s, the residential population dropped to somewhere around a thousand. Many of the folks that stayed had already retired from the mines, and the borough itself began to transform into a sleepy bedroom community as the young chose to drive to Sellins Grove or Pottsville for work. That was until the events of May 1962. You see, Centralia had been dealing with an illegal dumping problem, another commonality of Pennsylvania patch towns. People would wait until nightfall to toss old couches, 
appliances and other large assorted items over hillsides so that they didn't have to deal with it. In an effort to combat this, the borough council had purchased a bit of land near the edge of town to use as a landfill where people could dump said trash instead of using large-scale littering. The problem by spring of 1962 became that the landfill was almost full and expansion beyond its current limits were deemed impossible. So in coordination with local authorities, the town came up with an idea that would make any Pennsylvanian proud. They said, let's light all that shit on fire. They prepared a hole with fire retardant material to limit the burn and on May 27, 1962, the local fire department oversaw the controlled burn. That should be the end of the story, but it's not. Several days to several weeks later, residents began complaining of noxious fumes entering their homes. Some had seen reed flashes at the pit, and some even claimed to see wisps of smoke leaving the ground in areas away from the pit. Bulldozers were brought in to turn over the remnants of ash inside the dump so that any hot spots could be extinguished. It was only then that workers discovered a 15-foot hole at the bottom of the pit that formed during the fire in a place where the flame retardant material didn't cover. This hole led directly to an abandoned mine. Mine surveyors were brought in to assess the damage and found that they were indeed dealing with an abandoned mine fire burning underneath the town itself. It should be noticed, noted that this is anthracite coal, which is very hard and very long burning. State authorities were called in and came up with a plan to drill into the underground fire in an attempt to put it out. But by spring of 1963, they realized that they had underestimated, underestimated its size by more than half, so funding quickly ran out. The mine company stepped in and offered to assist, but the price tag was deemed too high and it was believed in error that the fire would eventually burn itself out. Fast forward 20 years, the fire still burning. By 1981, giant maws were opening up arbitrarily throughout the town. Roads began to buckle. One such sinkhole, 150 feet deep, almost claimed the life of 12-year-old Tom Domboski. The ground opened up directly beneath him, and he was only saved by clinging to an uprooted tree root until his cousin could rescue him. The near-lethal level of carbon monoxide within the mines made it all but impossible for anyone to fight the fire. At the beginning of 1983, the state surmised that it had spent almost $7 million and that the simplest solution would be to abandon and relocate the townspeople. There was only one problem. Many didn't want to leave. Ten years later, by 1993, 63 residents were still in their homes. And since they had all the time in the world, what with living on top of a mine fire, they began to file injunctions against the state to keep the property. In the meantime, the federal government rescinded its zip code, but borough council and the mayor stayed on. Finally, after years of really legal wrangling, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania allowed the remaining people to hold their property until their deaths, at which time the state would get the property via eminent domain. Currently, five people still live in Centralia. The main road entering has become known as Graffiti Highway, and curiosity seekers occasionally venture into the area in a sort of morbid form of tourism. This story is one of epic blunders, typical bureaucratic regress, 
and blatant ignorance of basic science. Now, it's said that in the 1860s, Centralia was the home of a band of Irish thugs referred to as the Molly Maguires. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with them. They were responsible in that area for a 10-year crime wave, and some of its leaders were executed. So perhaps, just perhaps, this was the Mollies' payback for the executions. Perhaps the ghosts of the Mollies are still bringing about the fires of hell upon the town's citizens. But either way, the fact remains, it's never wise to burn garbage in an open coal seam. That fire... Still going. <clears throat> Sorry, um, just so... Just so thirsty. Hungry? Yeah. Um, hungry. But, um, before I, I get someone to, something to eat, uh, uh, here's my thing about, uh, Philadelphia. <clears throat> the, um, the Philadelphia experiment. In 1943, while the Second World War raged across continental Europe, the Atlantic Ocean was as dangerous as it had ever been. The German submarine fleet tore through Allied shipping, but in Philadelphia Harbor, a secret plan was set in motion. It was incredibly dangerous to sail from North America to Europe, but what if there was a safer way? A scientist working with the Allies posited an idea. What if you were to use an incredibly strong magnetic field to disrupt what he called the unified field theory to make an object's physical field separate from its virtual field, rendering the object nearly invisible? The scientist's name? Dr. Albert Einstein. On the morning of July 22, 1943, a massive generator was turned on and microwave emitters were aimed at a destroyer named the USS Eldridge while it was docked at the Philadelphia Naval Yard. It was believed that the magnetic field would distort both light and sound around the Eldridge just enough to render the object nearly invisible. At 9 a.m., the device was activated, and the Eldridge was surrounded by a mysterious green haze. When the haze dissipated, it took the Eldridge with it. After 15 minutes, the trial was ended and the Eldridge reappeared in the harbor. The crew members on board were in a state of shock and many were disoriented, but the initial test was deemed a success. A second test in October of that year was conducted, yielding different results. The generators were turned on, the Eldridge once again disappeared, leaving a depression in the water before a blinding white flash left no trace of her. Hundreds of miles away, however, in Norfolk, Virginia, a conical green mist appeared in the harbor, with the Eldridge in the middle. Crewman Carlos Allende aboard the USS Andrew Firsith described the scene lasting for several minutes before the mist and the destroyer itself disappeared. At the same time, however, back in Philadelphia, the Eldridge reappeared. Inside, the scene was much different than before. While the previous experiment left some of the sailors on board the Eldridge nauseated or shaken up, 
The results this time were nothing short of nightmarish. Most of the crewmen were violently ill, while some were driven completely mad. Ranting nonsense, screaming incoherently, clung violently at themselves and the walls. Some of the crewmen were missing altogether, but no less than five had been partially fused to the bulkheads of the ship itself. The Navy saw it was dealing with forces beyond its control and the project was scrapped. Everything was quickly and quietly abandoned and as much evidence as possible was destroyed. The entire project was swept under the rug of history, but the war still raged on. Ultimately, it was decided that teleportation was not the answer, and a different top-secret experiment that began in Los Alamos testing grounds would end the war in the Pacific in 1945. The United States had its superweapon, and Einstein's electromagnets were lost to the pages of history. However, in 1955, a copy of a book by a man named Morris Jessup would end up in the hands of the Chief of Naval Intelligence Research. Mailed anonymously, the book was titled The Case for the UFO, and it included some very heavily annotated pages on a very specific topic. An experiment at the Philadelphia Naval Yards in 1943 the writing style has been described as rambling and semi-coherent at best, but it did include details of vortices of light and magnetic fields. The Office of Naval Intelligence contacted Jessup simply as a matter of protocol, and he recognized the annotations because they came to him in the form of correspondence nearly ten years prior. Correspondence from a man that identified himself as Carlos Allende. Jessup initially dismissed the letters as nonsensical ramblings, but now he obsessed over them. He turned what letters he still possessed over to the naval officers that contacted him, but he soon began poring over them. His personal relationships and work began to suffer, and as a result, his mental health would soon begin to decline. Ultimately, the obsession turned into depression, and just four years later, Morris Jessup took his own life. The Navy located Carlos Allende, who claimed that the entire thing had been an elaborate prank, and upon signing a confession, had himself voluntarily committed to psychiatric care. He disappeared again, only to pop up briefly in the mid-1960s after writing yet more letters to UFO author Jacques Vallée, and he was interviewed by scientific author Linda Strand, but the interview yielded similar results. Just like the letters, they were the incoherent ramblings of a man that obsessed over the theory of unified fields and Professor Albert Einstein. Because of his extremely reclusive nature, it is difficult to track exactly what happened to Allende after he left the Navy, and again after he left the institution, but a man named Carl Allen who had a social security number that matched that of Carlos Allende, died in Texas in 1994. Was it a hoax? Most people, including the Office of Naval Intelligence, were quick to dismiss Allende's story, but there is a wrinkle. 
why would the Navy push for the publisher of Jessup's book to reprint a limited number of copies of The Case for the UFO, specifically those with the annotated pages, and then proceed to spend the resources to investigate what they had in writing was a practical joke. No official records of the account exist, but they persisted for years in following up with not only the author of the books, but also the author of the letters. If Allende was only speaking nonsense, why were they worried about what he had to say? Maybe he was speaking the truth about the letters, but maybe, just maybe, he was speaking the truth about the cone of green fog and the screams that he heard in Norfolk Harbor in October of 1943. Mm. Hope you learn something filled up brains brains